I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 42, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 47 to 63. Tradition tells us that St. Peter Demon's entrance into this world was initially an unwelcome event that overtaxed and somewhat embittered his already large family. He was orphaned at a young age. His biographer, John of Lodi, tells us that were it not for the solicitude of his older brother, Damien, an archpriest at Ravenna, the youth might have lived out his life in obscurity as a swineherd, but God deemed otherwise. Peter's innate intellectual talents and remarkable piety in the light of great adversity were recognized by the archpriest who plucked his younger brother from the fields and provided him with an excellent education, first at Ravenna, then Fienza, and finally at the University of Parma. In return, Peter acknowledged his brother's loving care by adopting Damien as his surname. Although he excelled in his studies and quickly rose in academic ranks, Peter felt drawn to the religious rather than university life. His spirituality would be formed by his love for the rule of St. Benedict and his attraction to the rigorous penance and individualistic practices of St. Romuald. In his late twenties, he was welcomed into the Benedictine hermitage of the reform of St. Romuald at Fonta Avalana, where he eventually became prior, a position he retained until his death on February 21, 1072, which also also serving as Cardinal Bishop of Ostia, an honor bestowed upon Peter by Pope Stephen IX in 1057. The life of the well-traveled holy monk was distinguished by his great learning and marvelous knowledge of Holy Scripture and by great penitential acts, which served both as a rebuke and as an inspiration to his fellow monks and the particular clergy at a time in the church when moral turpitude was endemic in clerical ranks. Owen J. Blum, OFM, St. Peter Demon's chief translator and biographer in modern times, in one of his many works on the hermit monk, St. Peter Damien, his teaching on the spiritual life states that for Damien, the spiritual life was first and foremost a life of prayer, especially the recitation of the divine office. <clears throat> Peter Damien also promoted and practiced a special devotion to the Blessed Virgin. The two hallmarks of the holy monk's teachings on the spiritual life were his great hatred of sin and his fundamental and overriding interest in the spiritual advancement of the Catholic priesthood. As Blum noted, Damien thought of the priesthood as an order of the greatest dignity. Indeed, it was the exalted nobility of this office that caused him to speak in such dire terms to priests who forgot their position and tarnished their souls with incontinence. Damien showed remarkable insight into the importance of modern Episcopal leadership, stating that the example of a virtual life filters down from the princes of the church to all levels of the clergy and laity. 
The holy monk was equally insistent on the deposition of unworthy incumbents to the priesthood, the duty of which fell to the local bishop. Much of the success of his program and of clerical moral reform was due to the fact that Damien was able to closely link his own efforts with that of the papacy. Indeed, his wise counsel and diplomatic skills were employed by a long succession of popes. Damien died in the odor of sanctity on February 22, 1072, at the age of 66 in Fienza, while returning to Rome after a papal mission to Ravenna, the Book of Gomorrah, a medieval treatise on sodomy. Among St. Peter Damien's most famous writings is his lengthy treatise, Letter 31, the Book of Gomorrah, Liber Gomorrianus, written in the written in 1049 A.D., which contains the most extensive treatment and condemnation by any church father of clerical pederasty and homosexual practices. He is mainly discourse on the vice of sodomy in general, and clerical homosexuality and pederasty in particular was written in a plain forthright style that makes it quite readable and easy to understand. And keeping with traditional church teachings handed down from the time of the apostles, he held that all homosexual acts are crimes against nature and therefore crimes against God, who is the author of nature. It is always refreshing to find an ecclesiastic whose first and primary concern in the matter of clerical sexual immorality is for God's interest, not man's especially with regard to homosexuality and clerical ranks. Also, his special condemnation of pederastic crimes by clergy against young boys and men, including those preparing for holy orders made over 900 years ago, certainly tends to undermine the excuse of many American bishops and cardinals today who claim that they initially lacked specific knowledge and psychological insights by which to assess the seriousness of clerical pederastic crimes. Upon a first reading of the Book of Gomorrah, I think the average Catholic would find himself in a state of shock at the severity of Damien's condemnation of clerical sodomitical practices, as well as the severe penalties that he asks Pope Leo IX to attach to such practices. Part of this reaction, as J. Wilhelm asserts, with regard to modern Catholics, adverse reaction to the severity of medieval penalties, including capital punishment for heresy, can be attributed to the fact that we live in an age that has less regard for the purity of the faith and have, in sharp contrast to medieval saints like St. Peter Damien, lost a sense of sin. One of the most remarkable things about the Book of Gomorrah, written as it was, about 950 years ago, is how many of Damien's thoughts can be applied to the current pederast and homosexual debacle here in the United States and abroad, including the Vatican. His treatise certainly stands on a masterful, stands in a masterful reputation of contemporary homosexual apologists who claim that the early church fathers uh, did not understand the nature or, or dynamics of homosexuality. Rather, as Damien's work demonstrates, 
the degradation of human nature as exemplified by Semitical acts as a universal phenomenon that transcends time, place, and culture. A dominant theme of Damien's work was the holy monk's insistence on the responsibility of the bishop or superior of religious order to curb and eradicate the vice of sodomy from their ranks. He minced no words in his condemnations of those prelates who refused or failed to take a strong hand in dealing with clerical Semitical practices, either because of moral indifference, indifferentism, or the inability to face up to a distasteful and potentially scandalous situation. Other issues tackled by St. Peter Demon, which have a particular relevance today, are the problem of homosexual bishops or heads of religious orders who engage their spiritual sons in acts of sodomy, the sacrilegious use of the sacraments by homosexual clerics and religious, the special problems of the, for the church related to the seduction of youth by clerical pederasts, the problem of overtly lax canons and penances for clerical and religious offenders and that make a mockery of the seriously sinful nature of homosexual acts, the motivation for a treatise on sodomy. When the humble monk and future saint Peter Damien presented his letter 31, the Book of Gomorrah, to Pope Leo IX, he made it clear that his first overriding concern was for the salvation of souls. While the work is addressed specifically to the Holy Father, its distribution was intended for the universal church. Most universally, the bishops of secular clergy and superiors of religious orders. In his introduction, the holy writer made it clear that the divine calling of the apostolic see makes it makes its primary consideration the welfare of souls. Therefore, he pleaded when the holy father. Therefore, he pleaded when the holy father, with the holy father, to take action against a certain abominable and most shameful vice which he identified forthrightly as the befalling cancer of sodomy that was ravaging both the souls of the clergy and the flock of Christ in his region before God unleashed his vast wrath on the people. Recognizing how nauseating the very mention of the word sodomy must be to the Holy Father, he nevertheless asked with blind frankness, if a position is appalled by the contagion of the plague, who is likely to wield the castery, the cautery, if he grows squeamish when he is about to apply the cure, who will restore health to stricken hearts? Leaving nothing to misinterpretation, Damien distinguished between the various forms of sodomy and the stages of Semitical corruption, beginning with solitary mutual masturbation and ending with interfemoral between the thighs stimulation and anal coitus. He noted that there is an, a tendency among prelates to treat the first three degrees of the vice with an improper leniency, preferring to reserve dismissal from the clerical state for only those men proved, proven to be involved in anal penetration. The result, Damien stated, is that a man guilty of the lesser degrees of the vice accepts his milder penances, but remains free to pollute others without the least fear of losing his rank. The predictable result of his superior's leniency, said Damien, was that the vice spreads, the culprit grows 
more daring in his illicit acts, knowing he will not suffer any critical loss of his clerical status. He loses all fear of God, and his last state is worse than his first. Damien decried the audacity of men who are habituated to the filth to the filth of this festering disease, and yet dare to present themselves for holy orders, or if already ordained, remain in office. Was it not for such crimes that Almighty God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and slew Onan for deliberately spilling his seed on the ground? He asked, quoting St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, Ephesians, Ephesians 5, five, he continued, If an unclean man has no inheritance at all in heaven, how can he be so arrogant as to presume a position of honor in the church, which is surely the kingdom of God? The holy monk likened Sodomite seeking holy orders to those citizens of Sodom who threatened to use violence against the, rightful, against the upright lot and were about to break down the door when they were smitten with blindness by the two angels and could not find the doorway. Such men, he said, are stricken with a similar blindness, and by the just decree of God they fall into interior darkness. If they were humble, they would be able to find the door that is Christ, but they are blinded by their arrogance and conceit, and lose Christ because of their addiction to sin, never finding the gate that leads to the heavenly dwelling of the saints, Damien lamented. Not sparing those ecclesiastics who knowingly permit sodomites to enter holy orders or remain in clerical ranks while continuing to pollute their office, the holy monk lashed out at do-nothing superiors of clerics and priests and reminded them that they should be trembling for themselves because they have become partners in the guilt of others by permitting the destructive plague of sodomy to continue in their ranks homosexual bishops who prey on their spiritual sons. Then comes the bitterest blast of all reserved for those bishops who commit the, these absolutely damnable acts with their spiritual sons. Who can expect the flock to prosper when its shepherd has sunk into so deep into the bowels of the devil? Who will make a mistress of a cleric or a woman of a man? Who by his lust will consign a son whom he has spiritually begotten for God to slavery under the iron law of satanic tyranny, Damien thundered. Drawing an analogy between the sentence inflicted on the father who engages in familial incest with his daughter or the priest who commits sacrilegious intercourse with a nun with the defilement of a cleric by his superior, he asks if the, he asks if the letter latter should escape condemnation and retain his holy office. Actually, the latter case deserves an even worse punishment, said Damien, because whereas the prior two cases involved natural intercourse, a religious superior guilty of sodomy has not only committed a sacrilege with his spiritual son, but has also violated the law of nature. Such a superior condemn a superior damns not only his own soul, but takes another with him, Damien said. Clerical homosexual abuse of the sacrament of confession. Next Damien denounced as one of the devil's clever devices concocted in his ancient laboratory evil by which 
confirmed and clerical sodomites experiencing a pricking conscience confess to one another lest their guilt come to the contention of others. As Damien observed, however, though such men have become penitents involved in great crimes, they appear to look none the worse for their penances, and their their lips are not pale from fasting, nor are their bodies wasted by self-denial, nor are their eyes red from weeping for their sins. The holy monk questioned the validity of such confessions, asking, by what right or, or by what law can one bind or loose the other when he is constrained by the bonds of evil deeds common to them both? Quoting Holy Scripture concerning the blind leading the blind, Matthew 8, 4, Luke 5, 4, Damien continued, It becomes perfectly clear that he who is oppressed by the same guilty darkness tries in vain to invite another to return to the light of repentance. While he has no fear of extending himself to outstrip the other in erring, he ends up accompanying his follower into the yawning pit of ruin. Since this practice remains a common one today within the homosexual underworld of diocesan priests, bishops, and religious, and between pederast priests and their young victims, it may be well to recall that under the revised 1983 Code of Canon Law, the absolution of a partner, clerical or layperson, in a sin against the Sixth Commandment of the Decalogue is invalid except in danger of death. Canon 977, and a priest who acts against the prescription of Canon 977 incurs a latte sententiae excommunication, the lifting of which is reserved to the apostolic see, Canon 1378-1, unless the offending priest has his excommunication lifted by the sacred penitentiary of the Holy or the Holy or the Holy Father, he has not been validly absolved. Should he attempt to offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass in a state of mortal sin, he compounds his offenses with the grave sin of sacrilege. Sodomite priests and the sacred mysteries, in a lengthy and scathing attack on the futility. In a lengthy and scathing attack on faulty and spurious canons and codices related to penalties for various Semitical acts that were in use by the church in the mid thousands, Damien compared them to the harsh and long penances assigned to laymen guilty of unnatural acts with men and beasts by the church fathers at the Council of Ansira, 314 AD, and found them wanting. If under earlier church laws, a layman guilty of sodomy can be deprived of the Holy Eucharist for up to 25 years or even to the end of his life. How is it possible that a similarly offending cleric or monk is let off with minor penances and is judged worthy to not only receive the, receive the Holy Eucharist but consecrate the sacred mysteries? He asked, if the Holy Fathers ordained the sodomites should pray in the company of demoniacs. How can such a cleric be rightly? How can such a cleric hope to rightly exercise his priestly office as a mediator between God and His people? Damien continued. Later, Damien returned to the same theme and exclaimed, "For God's sake, 
Why do damnable sodomites pursue the heights of ecclesiastical dignity with such fiery ambition? He warned these clerics who persisted in their unnatural lust against inflaming the wrath of God, lest by your prayers you more sharply provoke him whom your wicked life so obviously offends. At the conclusion of this section, Damien reminded clerics and prelates alike that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. Remarkable insights into the nature of homosexuality. In his description of the unnatural passions that rule over the Sodomite, Damien revealed an extraordinary degree of perceptive perception regarding the narcissistic, promiscuous, and compulsive psychosexual aspects of homosexual behavior. Tell us, you unmanly and effeminate man, why do you seek in another male that you do not find in yourself? He asked, what difference in sex, what varied features of the body, he continued. Then he explained the law of life, for it is a function of the natural appetite that each should seek outside himself what he cannot find in his own capacity. Therefore, if the touch of masculine flesh delights you, lay your hands upon yourself and be assured that whatever you do not find in yourself, you seek in vain in the body of another, he concluded. The particular malice of the sin of sodomy. A wise Dominican once told this writer that once the vice of sodomy has contaminated a seminary, church authorities have only two options close the place down and send everyone home, or do nothing and simply wait for the moral rot to spread until the foundation collapses on its own. Why is this particular vice so deadly to the religious life? According to Damien, the vice of sodomy surpassed the enormity of all others. Without fail, it brings death to the body and destruction to the soul. It pollutes the flesh extinguishes the light of the mind, expels the Holy Spirit from the temple of the holy of the human heart, and gives entrance to the devil, the stimulator of lust. It lends to error, total, totally removes truth from the, dis, from the deluded mind. It opens up hell and closes the gates of paradise. It is this vice that violates temperance, slays modesty, strangles chastity, and slaughters virginity. It defiles all things, sullies all things, pollutes all things. This vice excludes a man from the assembled choir of the church. It separates the soul from God and to associate it with demons. This utterly diseased form, this utterly diseased queen of Sodom renders him who obeys the laws of her tyranny infamous to men and odious to God. She strips her knight of the armor of virtue, exposing them to be pierced by the spears of every vice. She humiliates her slave in the church and condemns him in court. She defiles him in secret and dishonors him in public. She gnaws at his conscience like a worm and consumes his flesh like fire. This unfortunate man, as he is deprived, he is deprived of all moral sense. His memory fails and the mind's vision is darkened. Unmindful of God, he also forgets his own identity. This disease erodes the foundation of faith, saps the vitality of hope, dissolves the bond of love. It makes away with justice, demolishes fortitude, 
removes temperance and blunts the edge of prudence, shall I say more? Repent and reform your lives. Like every saint before him and every saint that will ever come after him, St. Peter Damien exhorted the cleric caught in the vice of sodomy to repent and reform his life, and in the words of the blessed Apostle Paul, wake up from your deep, wake up from your sleep and rise from the dead, and Christ will revive you, enlighten you. Ephesians 5.14 In a remarkable affirmation of the gospel message, he warned against the ultimate sin of despairing of God's mercy and the necessity of fasting and prayer to subdue the passions. Beware of drowning in the depths of despondency. Your heart should beat with confidence in God's love and not grow hard and impenitent in the face of your great crime. It is not sinners but the wicked who should despair. It is not the magnitude of one's crime but contempt of God that dashes one's hopes. Then in one of the most beautiful elocutions on the grandeur of priestly celibacy and chastity ever written, Damien reminded the wayward cleric or monk of the special place reserved in heaven for those faithful priests and monks who have willingly forsaken all and made themselves eunuchs for Christ's sake. Their names shall be remembered forever because they have given up all for the love of God, he said. Notorious versus non-notorious offenders. One of the very interesting historical sidebars to Damon's treatise is that he made no reference to the popular practice of distinguishing notorious from non-notorious cases of clerical immorality, a policy which can be traced back to the ninth century and the canonical reforms of an ecclesiastical and religious discipline by the great German Benedictine scholar and Archbishop of Mainz, Blessed Morris Magnentius Rabanus, 766-856. Under this policy, the removal of clerics found guilty of criminal acts, including sodomy, depended on whether or not his offense was publicly known or was carried out and confessed in secret. In cases that had become notorious, the offending cleric was, befro- was defrocked and or handed over to the secular authorities for punishment. But if his crime was known only to a few persons such as his confessor or religious superior, the offending cleric was privately reprimanded and served a penance and then was permitted to continue at his post or transferred to a similar post in a different diocese. Given the aggressive and predatory nature of the vice of sodomy, it is highly likely that such a policy contributed to, rather than inhibited, sodomitical practices among clerics and religious between the mid-1800s and the early 1000s. In any case, it was unlikely that Damien, who openly expressed his condemnation of two lenient canonical regulations related to the punishment of clerical sodomites, and so was so judicious in preserving the integrity of the priesthood and religious life, would have approved such a policy. St. Damien prepares to defend his work. Saints are realists, which is no doubt why St. Peter Damien anticipated that his small book, which exposed and denounced homosexual practices in all ranks of the clergy, including the hierarchy, would cause a great commotion in the church, and so it did. In, the, in anticipation of harsh criticism, the holy monk 
puts forth his own defense as a whistleblower. He stated that his would-be critics will accuse him of being an informer and a debater on my brother's crimes and the delator of my brother's crimes. But he said he had no fear of either the hatred of evil men or the tongues of detractors. Here, dear reader, the words of St. Peter Damien that come thundering down to us through the centuries at a time in the church when many shepherds are silent, while clerical wolves, some disguised as in mitres and brocade robes, devour its lambs and commit sacrilege against their own spiritual sons. I would surely prefer to be thrown into well like Joseph, who informed his father of his brother's foul crime, than to suffer the penalty of God's fury, like Eli, who saw the wickedness of his sons and remained silent. Sam, Samuel 2-4 Who am I when I see this pestilential practice flourishing in the priesthood to become the murderer of, my, uh, murderer of another soul by daring to repress my criticism in expectation of the reckoning of God's judgment? How indeed am I to love my neighbor as myself if I negligently allow the wound of which I am sure he will brutally die to fester in his heart. So let no man condemn me as I argue against this deadly vice, for I seek not to dishonor, but rather to to promote the advantage of my brother's well-being. Take care not to appear partial to the delinquent while you permit Marley persecute him who sets him straight. If I may be pardoned in using Moses' words, whoever is for the Lord, let him stand with me. Ezekiel 32:26. True church reform begins with the vicar of Christ. As he drew his case against the vice of clerical sodomy to a close, St. Peter Damian pleaded with another future saint, Pope Leo IX, urging the vicar of Christ to use his office to reform and strengthen the decrees of the sacred canons with regard to the dispositions of clerical sodomites, including religious superiors and bishops who sexually violate their spiritual sons. Damien asked the Holy Father to diligently investigate the four forms of the vice of sodomy cited at the beginning of this of his treatise, and then provide him, Damien, with definitive answers to the following questions by which his, the darkest of uncertainty might be dispelled and an, and a decisive and an indecisive conscience freed from error. One is one who is guilty of these crimes to be expelled irrevocably from holy orders. Two, whether at a prelate's discretion, moreover, might one mercifully be allowed to function in office. Three, to what extent both in respect to the methods mentioned above and to the number of lapses, is it permissible to retain a man in the dignity of ecclesiastical office? For also, if one is guilty, what degree and what frequency of guilt should compel him under the circumstances to retire? D Damien chose his famous closed his famous letter by asking Almighty God to use Pope Leo IX's pontificate to utterly destroy this monstrous vice that a prostrate church may everywhere 
rise to vigorous stature. Pope Leo IX, the precursor of a Gregorian reform. Before describing the reception that St. Peter Damien's treatise on Saturday received at the papal court of Leo IX, I think it helpful to briefly examine the early life of this extraordinary Pope, the precursor to the great Hildebrand reform in the Catholic Church. Unlike Peter Damien, Bruno entered the world under much more favorable emotional and material circumstances than those of the Holy Monk. He was born at Egesheim, near the borders of Alsace, on June 21, 1002. At the age of five, his influential, loving, and pious parents committed him to the care of the energetic Berthold Bishop of Toul, who had a school for the sons of the nobility. The future pope's principal biographer and intimate friend, Wilbert, records that the youth was handsome, intelligent, virtuous, and kindly in disposition, a description which later manifested itself in the distinguishing title given him when he served as chaplain of the imperial court, the good Bruno. In 1027, Bruno became bishop of Toul, the frontier town of his youth that was now plagued both by war and famine. He remained at his father at this rather obscure see for more than 20 years until his ascendancy to the chair of Peter on February 12, 1049. When the saintly Bruno, after his election at Worms, entered Rome, dressed humbly in a friar's robe and barefooted, he was greeted by a cheering populace who acclaimed with one voice that they would have no other but Bruno as their new pope. Little wonder as again, little wonder as under the on again, off again reign of the dissolute Benedict the Ninth, 1032, 1044, 1045, 1047, 1048, the papacy had fallen into serious disrepute. Bruno's predecessor, Damasus II, Bishop of Brixen, had died of malaria after only 20 days in office. Like any pontiff set on reforming abuses within the church, Pope Leo IX immediately surrounded himself with like-minded, virtuous, and able clerics, including the remarkable Benedictine abbot Hildebrand of Tuscany, the future Pope Gregory VII one of the greatest popes of the church. In 1049, the pope appointed Hildebrand administrator of the patrimony of St. Peter's Vatican finances and made him promiser of the monastery of St. Peter, uh, monastery of St. Paul, extramuros, which had fallen into, the, into moral and physical ruin. Historian Thomas Osterreich states that monastic discipline was so impaired that the monks were attended in the refectory by women, and the sacred edifices were so neglected that the sheep and cattle freely roamed in and out through the broken doors. Deplorable conditions indeed, but soon to be remedied. Only four months after his election, Pope Leo IX held a synod to condemn the two notorious evils of the day, simony, i.e., the buying, selling, or exchange of ecclesiastical favors, offices, annulments, and other spiritual considerations, and clerical sexual incontinence, including concubinage, uh, 
permanent or long-standing cohabitation and sodomy. Immediately following the April Synod, he began his journey, his journeys through Europe to carry out his message of reform. In May 1049, he held a council of reform in Pavia, which was followed by visits and councils in Cologne. Reims, Reims' many decrees of reform were issued here and mains before returning to Rome in January 1050. It was during this period that Damien brought his intense, brought his treatise on sodomy to the attention of the Holy Father. Pope Leo IX gives his ruling on clerical sodomy. The approximate date that Damien delivered the Book of Gomorrah, Gomorrah to Pope Leo IX is generally held to be the second half of the first year of the pontiff's reign, i.e. mid-1049. Although some writers put the date as late as 1051, we do know absolutely that the Pope did respond to Damien's concerns. So as, as that response in the form of a lengthy letter, JL 4311, it pont 49F, Number two is generally attached to manuscripts of the work. Pope Leo IX opened his letter to his beloved son in Christ, Peter the Hermit, with warm salutations and a recognition of Damien's pure, upright, and zealous character. He agreed with Damien that clerics caught up in the execrable vice of sodomy barely and most assuredly will have no share in his inheritance, from which by their voluptuous pleasures they have withdrawn. Such clerics indeed profess, not if not in words, at least by the evidence of their actions, that they are not what they ought to be, he declared. Re reiterating the category of the four forms of sodomy which Damien lists, solitary masturbation, mutual masturbation, and interfemoral and coitus, and interfemoral, mortal, interfemoral, and anal coitus. The Holy Father declared that it is proper that by our apostolic authority we intervene in the matter so that all anxiety and doubt be removed from the minds of your readers. So let it be certain that and evident to all that we are in agreement with everything your book contains. Opposed as it is like water to the fire of the devil, the Pope continued, Therefore, lest the wantonness of this foul impurity be allowed to spread unpunished, it must be propelled by proper repressive action and of apostolic severity, and yet some moderation must be placed on its harshness, he stated. Next, Pope Leo the Ninth gave a detailed explanation of the Holy See's authority, authoritative ruling on the matter. In light of divine mercy, the Holy Father commanded without contradiction that those who of their own free will have practiced solitary or mutual masturbation or defiled themselves by fornicating between the thighs, but who have not done so for any length of time, nor with many others, shall retain their status after having curbed their desires and atoned for their infamous deeds with proper repentance. However, the Holy See removed all hope for retaining their clerical status from those who alone or with others for a long time or even a short period of 
course, many divide themselves by either of the two kinds of filthiness which you have described, or which is horrible to hear or speak of when have sunk to the level of anal intercourse. He, bear, he warned potential clerics that those who dare to criticize or attack the apostolic ruling stand in danger of losing their rank, and so as to make it clear to whom this warning is directed, the Pope immediately added, for he who does not attack vice but deals with it lightly is rightly judged to be guilty of his death along with the one who dies in sin. Pope Leo IX praised demon for teaching, by example, they're not more mere words and concluded his letter with the beautiful hope that when with God's help the monk reaches his heavenly abode, he may reap his rewards and be crowned, in a sense, with all those who were snatched by you from the snares of the devil. Differences on the matter of discipline. Clearly on the matter of immorality of Semitical acts. Clearly on the objective immorality of Semitical acts, both Damien and Pope Leo IX were in perfect accord with one another. However, in letters, in terms of church discipline, the Pope appeared to have taken exception with Damien's appeal for the wholesale deposition of all clerics who commit Semitical acts. I say appeared because I believe that even in the matter of punishing known clerical offenders, both men were more in agreement than not. Certainly Damien, who was renowned for his exemplary spiritual direction of the novices and monks entrusted to his care, was not unaware of the culpability of individuals charged with the crime of sodomy in all its forms. For example, some novices or monks may have been forced or pressured by their superiors to commit such acts. No doubt it is in circumstances such as those, such as these, that prompted Pope Leo IX to use the term who of his own free will in describing a cleric guilty of sodomy. Also among the four various, among the four varieties of sodomy Damien discusses in his treatise, he stated that interfemoral and anal coitus are to be judged more serious than solitary or mutual masturbation. All in all, what this writer found to be most remarkable about the Pope's letter to Damien was the absolutist position Pope Leo IX took concerning the ultimate responsibility of the offending clerics, bishop, or religious superior. If the latter criticized or attacked this apostolic decree, he risked losing his rank. Prelates who fail to attack vice but deal lightly with it share the guilt and sentence of the one who dies in sin, the Pope declared. Damien's contemporaries react to the treatise. Considering the utterly deplorable state of the secular clergy and monastic life during the 10th and 11th centuries, I think we can say without contradiction that the publication of the Book of Sodoma must, the Book of Gomorrah must have sent shockwaves throughout the church. Leslie Toke, whose biography of St. Peter Damien appears in New Advent, confirmed that his work caused a great stir and aroused not a little enmity against his author. Toke conjectured that even the Pope, who had at first praised the work, was persuaded that it was exaggerated and his coldness 
withdrew from deeming a vigorous letter of protest. I do not think that this assessment is a valid one. That Demon's treatise proved to be controversial and unwelcome, especially among superiors and members of the hierarchy who were sodomizing their spiritual sons or those with bad consciences resulting from an inability or an unwillingness to exercise their authority and severely disciplining clerics or monks is not surprising. But as to the charge that the holy monk was guilty of exaggerating the seriousness and extent of sodomy among the secular clergy and monks, not only in his region, but also in the church at large, I believe that that charge to be false. We know, for example, that among the first actions taken by Pope Leo IX at the Council of Reims in 1049 was the passage of a canon against sodomy, Semitical Biccio, also the probability of that Demian was, in fact, speaking the full truth concerning the extent of this plague in the church can be discerned from the from a number of subsequent visits, including condemnation of clerical immorality, including sodomy at the Synod of Florence, attended by a Demian in June ten fifty five, under the pontificate of Pope Victor the Second, ten fifty five to ten fifty seven. Almost fifty years after Demian's death, the Council of Nablus assembled in 1120 under the direction of Garmund, Patriarch of Jerusalem and Baldwin, King of Jerusalem, continued to issue edicts and penalties against the vice and crime of sodomy. We also know that St. Anselm, 1033 to 1109, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, England, confirmed Damien's thesis of the widespread practice of sodomy not only among clergy, but commoner and courtier as well, when he stated that this sin, sodomy, has been publicly committed to such an extent that it scarcely makes anyone blush, and that many have fallen into it in ignorance of its gravity. Certainly Damien's reputation and credibility was not diminished in the minds of the great and holy men of his day by either the writing or the sub-publication of his treatise on sodomy. Pope Leo IX and future popes continued to seek out his services and advice, including Pope Nicholas II, 1059-1061, and Pope Gregory VII, 1073-1085. Also, Pope Stephen IX, 1057-1058, made Damien a cardinal in 1057 and consecrated him Cardinal Bishop of Austria and appointed him administrator of the Diocese of Gubbio. Although never formally canonized, St. Peter Damien was revered as a saint at the time of his death, and his cultus has existed since then at the Monastery of Fianza, at the Desert Hermitage of Fonte Avellana, at the Great Abbey of Monte Cassino, and at Hildebrand's Benedictine Monastery at Cluny. And 11, in 1823, Pope Leo XII extended his feast February 23 to the whole church and pronounced him St. Peter Demon, a doctor of the church. Also, Alan of Lille in defense of nature. The church's condemnation of homosexual acts continued to be expressed in many different ways throughout the medieval period by traditional means such as council edicts and papal declarations and by more personal and unusual initiatives 
as Peter Damien's Book of Gomorrah and 120 Years Later, all Eleanor Blills, The Paint of Nature. I was introduced to this marvelous work of Alan O'Lill by my longtime friend and pro-life colleague, Dr. Herbert Ratner, editor of Child and Family Magazine and one of the 20th century's most illustrious family physicians, who frequently referred to nature as the Vicar General and God the Father, a phrase taken from Alan's work. The famous monk, poet, theologian, eclectic philosopher, and moral performer was born in Lille in Flanders in 1116 and died at the Cistercian Monastery of Sato in 1203. A devotee of Plato, his works reflected a phenomenal knowledge of both classical and Christian literature and made him one of the most celebrated teachers of his day. Alan also took took part in the Third Lateran Council in Rome in 1179, called by Pope Alexander III and attended by the Emperor Frederick I and more than 302 bishops, including among the many edicts directed at the Reformation of Morals was the provision that any cleric found guilty of the sin against nature was to be demoted from his state and kept in reclusion in a monastery to do penance. If he were a layman, he was to be excommunicated and kept rigorously distant from the communication of the faithful. In the plaint of nature to plant nature, written in Manipian style with strong satirical quasi-comic overtones, was Allen's most enduring work. Dated 1160 to 1165, I have used the translation and commentary of James J. Sheridan of St. Michael's College, Toronto. The heroine of the poem is nature herself, who has been appointed by God as his substitute, his vice-regent, to ensure that there would be no deviations in the natural order. All goes well for a time until nature abandons her post in favor of an incompetent delegate, Venus, who opens up the door of vice and unnatural sexual practice to man, who of all God's creatures is capable of turning his back on the natural order. In the end, nature is forced to outlaw and excommunicate those who indulge in these vices. The plaint of nature opens with our poet, beset by sorrow arising from man's contempt for nature, nature's laws regarding sex and generation. Homosexuality has become rampant. Women have lost their attractiveness, and the great lovers are no more. In the midst of this, of his trance-like state, the poet is visited by a beautiful creature wearing a crown of stars and a dress forever changing color. She reveals herself to him. She is nature. Her complaint and the reason she has come to earth is that a man upon whom she has lavished many honors and privileges has turned against her and is indulging in many sexual perversions. Yet nature's laws cannot be eradicated, she insists, for they guide all things, keep the world in order, and bind things together which cannot be untied. It is man who must reform, or nature will punish him for his intransigence. The poet then asks nature why she attacks sodomy so bitterly in light of the claim that even the gods, for example, Jupiter, Bacchus, and Apollo are said to indulge in the same sex practices. She replies that the works of these poets are naked falsehoods made attractive by artistic appeal or falsehood, falsehoods dressed in a cloak of probability 
man finds lies attractive, nature explains, because by associating unnatural sex with the gods, the man is better able to excuse his own deviant behavior. The poet then asks how it came to be that God's vice-regent should find herself under such violent attack, and nature tells him her tale of woe. Nature says she retired and subdelegated her work to Venus, whom she gives explicit instructions that her laws and blueprint for generation are to be followed literally and without exception. Sexual unions are to be strictly between males and females, but Venus gets bored and abandons both her husband, Hymenaeus, to whom she has pledged her troth, and her legitimate son, Desire, to take up an illicit affair with Antigenus, Antigenius, with whom she spawns a bastard son. Sport, Jocos, who becomes the font of all perversions. Nature charges Venus with unmanning man and changing her, changing hercs into there, into he's, into she's. Venus has turned him into a hermaphrodite. Using a grammatical metaphor, Alan, speaking through nature, laments that whereas under nature's laws, man is the subject of, and woman the predicate, man has betrayed his nature by attempting to become at once both subject and predicate, but it is an utter impossibility. By in opening the door to such sexual transgressions, nature asserts, Venus has also opened the door to other vices, including injustice, fraud, gluttony, avarice, arrogance, envy, prodigality, and disrespect for the law. However, nature attests, man can and must combat these vices by practicing the opposite virtues, chastity, temperance, generosity, and humility. Among the remedies she proposes are fasting, restraint from strong drink, and that unleashes lust, custody of the eyes, and generosity. At the end of our tale, nature calls upon her consort, Genius, who dons his official robes and reads the sentence of excommunication, the punishment for man who has sinned against nature. Nature and her attendants with their candles and then depart. Darkness descends and the poet awakens from his ecstasy. Although Alan's condemnation of sodomy took quite a different form than that of St. Peter Damien, both writers appeared to be of one mind with the early church fathers when, with regard to the steps necessary to conquer the vice of homosexuality. St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas Aquinas condemn sodomy. Among the great Dominican doctors of the Church of the Middle Ages, two, St. Albert, Albertus Magnus and St. Thomas Aquinas, were uncompromising in their condemnation of sodomy. The Doctor Universalis, St. Albert the Great, 1206 to 1280, scientist, philosopher, and theologian who was recognized for his extraordinary genius and extensive knowledge, condemned Semitical acts on four grounds. One, they proceed from a burning frenzy that subverts nature. Two, they are acts of disgusting foulness of high and low estate. Three, the vice tenaciously binds its adherents, making it difficult for a man to extricate himself from the practice. Four, the vice quickly the vice quickly passes quickly from one person to another. The equally gifted Dr. Angelicus, St. Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274, known for his 
known for both his intellectual genius and humble Christocentric piety, held that all sexual acts between persons of the same sex, even if consensual, were nevertheless transgressions of the divine law by which man's sexual nature is governed. He contends that any sin against nature, peccatum contra naturum, debases man to a level beneath that of the animal, that of an animal, the creation of inquisitional tribunals. The Fourth Council of the Lateran in 1215, held under Pope Innocent III and attended by St. Dominic, was the most important council of reform of the medieval period. In terms of sacramental and moral reform, the council mandated personal confession, including the confession of sexual sins. This necessitated a better educated clergy capable of making moral distinctions with regard to the exact nature and seriousness of the sins of the penitent, which in turn contributed to a greater appreciation of and special insights into the complexities of human psychology and behaviors regarding sexual behaviors. The Council also included the promulgation of a number of canons designed to counteract the radical teachings of the Albigensians and Cathari, sects to which the crime of sodomy has been traditionally linked. These sects were highly aggressive and hostile, not only to the Church, but to the state and legitimate civil authority as well. Following the close of the Council, the Church began a lengthy process of standardizing canonical and criminal procedures many of which had historical historic roots in both Roman and English law. A new form of papist, a new form of inquiry or inquisition among papal le- le- delegates and judges were established to combat the growing menace of the her- his heretical sects and to administer justice in the name of the church. The new newly emerging Manican orders were made, were tailor-made for the task because of their res- wide respect among the populace and their superior theological training and detachment from worldly considerations. The order of preachers, particularly known as the Dominicans and the Franciscans, were chosen by Pope Gregory IX, 1227 to 1241, to organize and conduct these in- tribunals. The these early, inquisition, these early inquisitions were not a distinct and separate entity, but rather a grouping of permanent judges who ex- executed their doctrinal functions in the name of the church. Where they sat, there was the inquisition. I have to end this reading right now because I'm going to run out of time, so I'll end my podcast here. I'll continue it in the next, in the next episode. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.